0: All right, friends, we're in week seven of a sermon series on leadership lessons from Nehemiah on the rest of work. And it's a reminder that the work that God has called us to do is so great. And God has called each of us to respond to that calling. Now, again, we're in week seven. If you've missed any of these sermons, you can go to our YouTube channel, look up Bel Air Church and get started in week one with God is looking for leaders. Now, of course, you don't have to have listened to each of these sermons to really grasp what God has for us in this sermon. But if you want to go back, you're welcome to do so. And if you miss the next two, as we round out this sermon series, nine weeks in total, we'd love for you to go to that YouTube channel and to search for Bel Air Church. Again, the sermon series is the rest of work. Now, God has called all of us to use our influence for God's glory. I love this great quote. I've shared it every single week. And it's from Ken Blanchard. He says this, he's a great leader in leadership. And he says that whenever we use our influence to influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, we engage in leadership. Even if you don't have a title of boss or CEO, or if people don't see you as a leader, in actual fact, you influence people in your actions, in your body language, in what you say and what you don't say. On one hand, it's this great call for us to understand that God has called us to influence others, not just for the sake of influence, but to influence people for God's glory. That's how we're going to thrive. And that's what our world needs right now. Okay, in this sermon series, we're going through a book of the Bible, Nehemiah. We're on chapter six today. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn there. We're going to go all the way through chapter six. And a little backdrop on what's happened here is a refresher, or if you're not familiar with the story, Nehemiah. A Jewish man has been working as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. At this time in Israel's history, they are in exile. They've forgotten God's call in their lives. They began to worship other gods and foreign kingdoms came in and took over their land and scattered them to the ends of the earth. And now you've got Nehemiah, who is so grieved to hear that Jerusalem, where the temple used to Uh, dwell, and God's people used to dwell, has been in ruins. And though the temple has been rebuilt, the walls have not been rebuilt. And the first few chapters are Nehemiah coming with his grief before God, hearing God's call on his life to go to the king of Persia and ask for permission to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall using the king's authority and the king's resources. And as we've gone through this, we've taken a look at it different aspects in a very practical way of how we can grow as godly leaders. And today we get to the completion of the wall. A reminder that for 90 years, the wall has been attempted to be rebuilt twice. Both of those times failed attempts. And now we have this remarkable, remarkable work that Nehemiah and the people do and they're able to complete the building of the wall in just 52 years. Days, despite opposition from outside, opposition from within, doubts and fears, there's oppression and injustice that we talked about last week, there was temptation, all these things rise up. All these things can distract us from following and doing the work of God. And today we get to, very practically, the power of a leader. You know, where do we get our power from? Is it our own strength? Is it our track record? Is it our experience? And how do we have the power or the agency not just to do work, to not just lead and not just to influence others, but how do we have the power and the agency to do that despite distraction, despite intimidation and despite all the things that might come in? And as we go through this, we're going to see three things, three attacks that happen to Nehemiah. There's attacks on his focus, there are attacks on his motivation, and there's even attacks on his safety. And we're going to see where he gets the power to lead faithfully through all of it. So the first is this, even when people attack your focus. All right, let's take a look. Uh, Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now, when it was reported to Sanbalat and Tobiah and to Geshem the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had built the wall and there was no gap left in it, though up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanbalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Now, you have these people who have, from the very beginning, ridiculed, mocked, distracted, and attacked Nehemiah and the people of Israel from accomplishing this great task that God called them to accomplish. Now, these uh, foreign invaders and these enemies knew that if the walls were rebuilt around Jerusalem, it would be detrimental to them as outsiders. Previously, when there's no walls, they could come freely in and they could attack, they could plunder, they could take whatever they wanted from God's people who were unprotected. They were able to tax from the outside. And the nation of Israel learned that taxation. They began to tax one another. They knew that if the wall was built, they wouldn't be able to do any of that. And they're trying every last method to get this wall not finished. And right here, they attack his focus. And they send word. Would you just come? Would you come and meet with us in the plains of Ono? this geographical location that was actually 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. Here, Nehemiah is focused on building the wall and they attack his focus by inviting him to just talk and not to talk there, but to talk way out off in the plains, 20 miles away. And in the ancient world, that's no quick trip. That's no quick drive. Uh, There's no Uber to send him out there. This would have taken Quite a bit of time, perhaps even days to be accomplished. Even more so, this is what Nehemiah says. Not just is there an invitation, but it says, but they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? They sent to me four times in this way. So this attack on his focus didn't just happen once, it happened Four times in all. You know, it is so true that focus is one of the key things that enable us to have power and agency over the work that we are called to do. Of course, we're going to see the great backdrop to all of this is that godly leaders use a power that doesn't come from themselves, their track record, but it is a power and an agency that comes from God. And a couple great quotes. I love this. Uh, When was the last time you heard a Zig Ziglar I remember in high school, I went to a conference and I first heard Zig Ziglar talk, a great motivational uh, teacher. He says this, that lack of direction, not lack of time, is the problem. We all have 24-hour days. And isn't it true in your life, and I know in my life, that sometimes I feel like I just don't have enough time in the day. And Zig Ziglar rightly says, it's not the time that's the problem. It's direction. When I get distracted, when I get pulled away from the task at hand, ultimately I run out of time to do the very thing that I'm called to do. Alexander Graham Bell said this, concentrate all your thoughts upon the work at hand. The sun's rays do not burn until brought to a focus. The book of Proverbs 4.25 says this, lay your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. And Proverbs 29.18 says, when there is lack of vision, the people will perish. Now there's a lot of great books, a lot of great conferences, a lot of great techniques to help you avoid distraction and stay focused. And I'm not here to tell you to just try in your own strength, in your power to remain focused. I see in Nehemiah's life something that we can apply to our lives, and it's this, that we can have the power, even when people or things attack your focus, to rest, here's the the response, here's the answer, to rest in God's vision for your focus. You see, Nehemiah, he was called by God to do a work. And it was God's vision of a completed wall. It was God's future reality that God invited Nehemiah to help bring into fruition. And he kept his eyes on something greater than just the task at hand. He kept his eyes on something greater than just the work in front of him. He kept his eyes on something so much greater than just straight ahead. He kept his eyes on God's vision for the completed work. And he rested in God's vision. Now in this sermon series, remember, we've titled this sermon series, The Rest of Work. And we mean it in two ways. Of course, there's work that God has accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Work that uh, is finished and is complete and yet won't be fully experienced until Jesus returns again. And so in this in-between time, of the already and not yet, of the kingdom of God, fully here, fully experienced on earth as it is in heaven, God has poured out God's spirit to you and me as followers of Jesus. And as the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, we are called to do the rest of work, the rest of the work that God has started through Jesus Christ, of loving our neighbor as ourself, of putting into practice the way of Jesus. Did you know that there's 58 different one another verses in Scripture. You know, the one another verses are verses like, pray for one another, encourage one another, lay down your lives for one another, bear one another's burdens. When we do this work, we're completing the work that Jesus began. This is work that lasts into eternity. You know, there's a lot of work that we can do. that is earthly work. But if we take a posture of, I am working at this unto the Lord, that work actually becomes eternal because it's done for God's glory. And so Nehemiah, listen to how he responds. I've already read it, but just to reiterate, they've come to him four different times. He responds the same way on each of those four occasions. He says in verse three, So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? Now, we have to zoom out and see the fullness of this book of the Bible to understand why Nehemiah would call it a great work. It's a great work, not because it's a great wall. It's not a great work because Nehemiah is the one doing it. It is a great work because the great God has called the nation of Israel to do it. And when you catch a vision for what God is inviting you into. When you catch a vision for the work that God longs to do through you and you rest in that vision, you sit reflecting, exploring, praying about, sharing with others what that future reality, that future vision looks like. It gives you energy. It gives you focus. It gives you a power to move forward and to lead in a godly way despite attacks on our focus. You know, as a church, we've been serving the city of Los Angeles and our nation and globe for 65 years. And God has given us a vision to be a church at work. And when we envision, when we we rest in God's vision for our church, here's what we see. We see every single person who calls Bellar the church home. And this includes you. Regardless if you've been to our physical campus or not. Regardless if you live in Los Angeles or not. Every single person that calls Bellar the church home that you would consider yourself as part of the church. You see, church, it's not a building. It's not an hour on Sunday, though we might refer to it that way. Scripture says that church are people were defined by the reality of who Jesus is. And when you catch the vision that you are part of the church and as part of the church, you were called to join your church family in work of serving one another, of using your gifts to build up this body, of practicing the one another's of scripture with those in this church family, of of being a minister to those in this family, of participating in life groups and joining classes and, and worshiping God. You see, when we do this work and when we own this work, we stop outsourcing this work to just the pastors or just the staff or just the elders or just the deacons, but we see how every single one of us is an indispensable part of the whole. Remember, Nehemiah, was called to build a wall. And in order to build that wall, he recruited all the people to participate. Well, we're not called to build a wall right here at Bel Air. We're called to build a body, the body of Christ. And the only way we can do that is if you say yes to God's vision for your life in and through this church family. And we want to equip you in that work. Every class, every sermon, every resource, what we share on social media, on our website is to help you catch the vision that you are the church. And there's work that God is calling us to do. But also as you catch the vision of us being a church at work, it's not just when we gather together in person or online. It's not just when we gather together in life groups. It's not just when we go out on global service teams or serve in the city of Los Angeles. It's also when we go individually into our places of work. And that's where I believe that God has called us as a church family. Our elders are unanimous in agreement that God has a vision for us to be the church at work. We are very unique as a church family. We have people of influence and leaders literally across every single industry, not just in Los Angeles, but around the globe. And it's the envisioned future that we rest in, that we believe God has called us to, that we would be people of influence, godly leaders in our workplaces. Regardless if that's raising up the next generation in your household, whether that's as a student working for a nonprofit, whether you are the bottom of the org chart or the the top, whether you do it volunteered or for pay, that you would use your influence in your place of work so that collectively we would be the church wherever we go. And that's our mission statement, to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And that's what's so amazing about this moment right now because of how God has called us to equip the church to be a church at work. And as we extend our reach beyond our physical campus, not only are we reaching thousands of people in Los Angeles through our broadcast, but also through... YouTube, our social media, our website, we have people from 160 different countries who are experiencing our services over the course of a year. That was the data from last year, 2021. Who knows what God will grow and do through us in 2022, but you're a part of that. And as you see yourself as part of the church, would you say yes to join your church family and first being known, would you go to belairorg forward slash connect that you would fill out a very short form so that we can follow up with you, we can know where you live, we can encourage you, we can pray for you, we can help get you connected into a life group. Maybe that's you starting it in person in Lafayette, North, uh, Northern California. Maybe for some of you who I know, I've I've met you and we've talked, who live in Paris. Maybe that's you joining a digital group online or that's starting a group in Paris. We believe that God has called us to be a church that knows no physical bounds, that isn't just rooted in a particular zip code, but is rooted in the heart of God. And then as we follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, that we would stay focused on being the church at work, that we would stay focused on following Jesus. Again, I love, just to reiterate Proverbs 29, 18, when there is lack of vision, the people will perish. This is what we're all about. This is the vision that God has called us to, that you and me, every single one of us, are an indispensable part of the church. And there's work that God is calling you to do, not only when we're together, but our places of work. So that's how Nehemiah responds. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't go off and go to that meeting because that's different than the long obedience in the same direction that God's vision has for him. The second is this. Uh, They begin to realize that it is not just uh, a focus that they can attack, but it's also his motivation, and we're going to see this, that even when people attack your motivation, we're called to rest in God's calling in our work. Take a listen and take a look if you have your Bibles open. This is in verse 5. In the same way, Balat for the fifth time, he's written four letters saying, come, come to Ona. let's come come talk. Now the fifth time, in the same way, Balat for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. In his hand. Now, an open letter versus a closed letter in the ancient world meant that this was to be read out loud. This was to be public. This was not a personal communication. This was a public communication. This is not a a private distraction. This is a public attack on Nehemiah's motivation because this is what is written. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to this report, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, there is a king in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king of Persia according to these words. So come therefore and let us confer together. The first tactic of just trying to distract didn't work because Nehemiah rested in God's vision. And so now they have, in a very public way, a letter that's been written, a letter that's been passed around, a letter that's been signed off by all the nations, all the people groups surrounding Jerusalem. There now is this this rumor growing that is built on a false report of the motivation of Nehemiah to build the wall. The false report is this, that they wanna build the wall in order to just rebel against the king. They wanna rebuild the wall so that Nehemiah can make himself king. And it is one of the hardest things as a leader when people, not just privately, but publicly attack your motivation for doing something. I can't tell you how many emails how many public meetings, how many annual meetings, how many conversations that I've been in over the last eight years. And it's remarkable. I mean, it's too many to count how many times people have attributed the wrong motivation to me of why I do things. And as we go through these three things of focus and motivation and safety, I believe that every single one of us has one more than the other that is kind of the chink in our armor. For me, I can stay really focused. For me, I don't really worry about my safety. But when someone publicly questions my motivation, I don't know what happens. I don't know where this comes from. It is a weakness in me, but it stops me dead in my tracks. And I find myself in my mind, it begins to swirl. It begins to just get through. And it could be somebody who I can tell they're saying it not with good intentions. They're not saying it to to hope that I would come back. They're saying it to hurt me. They're saying it to to cause me to step back and to do the very thing that they don't want me to do or want me to do. And and, and I just, I, I get frazzled. I don't know what it is. My wife knows that I've had emails that have come through that that don't bother me at all. But if you want to get under my skin, if you want to stop me in my tracks, I mean, here I am, totally vulnerable. Question my motivation. And I don't know what it is, but that's what gets me. That's why I need to learn. That's why I need to listen to what God has for me. And I pray that God would share with you, what's the one thing that gets you? Do you worry about staying focused? Do you, are you concerned about your safety or how much money you're going to make or you know, the, the consistency of something? Or is it when people question your motivation? Is that what gets you? Well, let's see how Nehemiah responds. Again, the point is this. Even when people attack your motivation, you need to rest in God's calling to the work. This is what he says. Again, this is Nehemiah chapter six in verse eight, plain as day, talk about straight talk. Verse eight, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, Nehemiah prays, but now, O God, strengthen My hands. When his motivation is attacked, he's able to speak plainly to it and to call it out for what it is to say that you're making this up. And as he does that, he prays to God, saying, God, strengthen my hands. I believe the reason why Nehemiah was able to have the power, to have the agency. To rebuff that attack on his motivation is because he had rested in God's calling to do that work. He knew that he wasn't doing this work because he wanted to, because he just thought it was a great idea. Again, if you were to go back in Nehemiah, which we've covered in the previous weeks, he hears word about what's happened in Jerusalem. He's grieved, but before he is a fixer, before he goes solves the problem, he prays. And out of that prayer life in private, he's able to, in public, have an interaction with the king of Persia that leads him to request, again, to go to Jerusalem and to build the wall. And because he followed God's leading, God gave him wisdom on how to ask the king. Again, this was, I believe, in week three. Remember, when he went to the king and he asked, he asked not only that he could go, but he asked for the authority to do so. He also asked for the authority to pass from Jerusalem to, from uh, uh, where he was in the palace to Jerusalem. And he also asked for the authority to cut down trees from the king's forest to go all the way and to build with the king's resources, the wall. And so Nehemiah, his motivation is attacked, but he knows the history. And he rests on the fact that that God had called him to this work, that God had given wisdom and even how he was engaging in this work. And in actual fact, he had the king's blessing. It was the complete opposite of what these enemies were saying. And because of that, Nehemiah knew that he wasn't doing this to rebel against the king. He asked for the king's permission. And he wasn't doing this so that he would be king because he knew that there was only one king, the king of kings, the maker of heaven and earth. Listen to these passages. Proverbs 10:9 says this, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. A reminder that godly leaders, we have power when we walk in integrity, when we stay resting in God's call and as God calls us to a particular task, we, we walk in that despite the distractions, despite the attacks on our focus, despite the attacks on our motivation. Titus 2, 7 and 8 say this, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Nehemiah, he lived this out. He could walk in powerful integrity because he hadn't fallen into all the temptations that we talked about last week. He hadn't fallen into all the conflicts that we talked about last week, that he was following God's call in his life. And because of that, he could easily say, you guys are making this up. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says this, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, there's something true that happens when God calls us to do a work. When he calls us to do a work, maybe that's to forgive somebody. Maybe that's to ask for forgiveness. When God calls us to do a work, for example, of praying for an enemy or to seek reconciliation, or if God calls us to do a work of acting in such a way in our workplace that is honest, that is filled with integrity. Uh, If God calls us to do a work that treats every single person with respect, no matter where they are on the socioeconomic spectrum, no matter where they are on the org chart, when God calls us to do that work, He also gives us gifts. He equips us. I love the phrase that's been used for decades, that God doesn't so much call those that are already equipped, but He He equips those whom God calls. And I love in Romans, Paul writes this, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Nehemiah knew it. And that's where his power came from. That because God had called him to do this work, he gave him the gifts and the wisdom and the resources to do it. And he simply rested in that And his motivation didn't need to change. He didn't need to do it for his glory. He didn't need to do it for his resume. He didn't do it to to have more power or position or privilege in his life. He simply did it out of obedience to God. I'd love for you to think about in your own life, uh, the motivation for why you do things, the motivation for why you do anything, of work, relationally, within your family, with friends or in your workplace. The greatest call that you can ever capture, catch, respond to is the call of God in your life to connect your work to God's work, to see that that work lasts into eternity. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for elders in a church. It's for every single human being on the planet. God is calling each of us to use the gifts that God gives us, the relationships that we have, the opportunities that can so easily pass us by to be used by God as instruments of peace, of love, of grace, of mercy, of humility and power. So say yes to that. Let your motivation be simply in response to the love that God and the calling that God has for you in your life. The third is this that even when people attack your safety, rest in God's provision. On your life. Take a look and listen to how this plays out right now. Verse 10 of Nehemiah 6. One day when I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his house, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, tonight they are coming to kill you. But I said, Should a man like me run away? Would a man like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived and saw that God had not sent him at all, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanbalat had hired him. So now there's not just an attack on his focus, not just an attack on his motivation. Now an attack on his safety. And he responds and he says, would a man like me? What do you mean by that, Nehemiah? When he says a man like me, he's not talking about would a man like me who knows martial arts. When he says like a man like me, who's you know, armed to the teeth, he's not saying that. When he says a man like me, he's not talking, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm never fearful in the face of danger. When he says a man like me, here's what he's referring to. A man who is absolutely trusting in my God to protect me, to provide for me. A man like me who is in the hands of my maker and in the hands of my maker, I'm safe. And here's what's so remarkable about that level of faith. As the distraction goes deeper and deeper and deeper from focus to motivation to safety, You see in Nehemiah's life, his power rise and rise and rise because it's not a power that comes from himself. It is a power from God alone. It's a power that enables him to focus. It's a power that enables him to rest in God's calling. And it's a power that enables him to rest in God's provision. All these passages in Scripture of God's promises to provide and protect. Here's just a few of them. This is Isaiah 54, 17. It says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication for me, declares the Lord. In Deuteronomy 31, 6, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of your enemies, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And this depth of a reliance on God's promises is so deep, not only among Nehemiah, but many people throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite places in all of Scripture is in the book of Daniel. You've got Shadrach, you've got Meshach and Abednego. These great names that I remember learning as a kid. These, these three guys who are faithful in worshiping God and honoring God, also in captivity, also in exile. They are living in Babylon. And without going to all the detail, without getting distracted here in this sermon, uh, they are punished because they're worshiping God rather than the Babylonian king. And they are thrown into a pit of fire. And there's this famous moment where they respond and they say, we trust in our God to protect us and provide for us. And because of that, we're gonna to continue to worship our God and we're not gonna worship this earthly king. And this is where it gets deep. This is where the faith level is so profound. This is where a power rises up in the face of danger, in the face of attacks to your safety when they say this, but even if we die, even if we burn in the fire, we will still worship our God and not your earthly king. How could they say that? You might be thinking, what? How can you worship God and not an earthly king if you're dead? Well, they have a perspective that has been given to them from God. And it's a pers- perspective that says this that your life is much bigger than just this temporary life here on earth. The fullness of your life stretches into eternity. And come what may on this side of eternity, ultimately there is nothing in all of creation, as it says in the book of Romans, that can separate us from God's love. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, neither life, nor death can separate us from the love of God. And so Nehemiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many faithful followers of Jesus throughout the millennia have been able to stand faithful in the face of danger and death. You know, in some ways, I personally can't relate to this. You know, I live um, here, it's 2022, in the United States. I've never really, except for just brief moments out in the mission field around the globe, I've never really had to fear for my life as a follower of Jesus. Now, I know that that is... In some ways, a rarity around the globe, when you think about persecution that's happening right now in places like India and certain parts of Africa and certain parts of um, uh, Asia and uh, Middle East, various parts of South America, even around the globe, there are people who right now fear naturally for their lives or could fear for their lives because they're following Jesus. You look out through global and not only historical Christianity, there's people who have been killed for their faith. And how is it that they could stand in the face of death? In some cases, singing. In some cases, praising God. In some cases, praying for those that are about to kill them. I think about Peter, you know, Simon Peter, who, you know, denies Jesus three different times who ultimately at the end of his life is crucified for his faith. And in the face of death, it's reported that he was singing, that he was praying, that he even says, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. He was worshiping in that moment. He was resting in God's provision because he knew that this earthly existence was just a blip in all of eternity. And history says that he was crucified upside down. How did he have that power? How did he have that strength? Well, the same way that Nehemiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same way that God longs for you to experience, is that you have power in the face of attacks on your safety because you rest in God's provision on your life. This doesn't mean that you won't get sick. This doesn't mean that you won't get cancer. This doesn't mean that you won't get in a car accident. This doesn't mean you're not going to have broken bones. You see, there's a distortion among some segments of Christianity that say that if you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see that in practice. This provision is much bigger. It is much deeper. It is much more profound than just this temporary existence. And I believe Nehemiah knew it. And he says, what kind of man am I? I'm a man that trusts in God's provision. And even that, as you heard here, he sees it in the grand narrative, the grand story of what God is doing. And as a result, he has the power to stay focused. When there's a tax on his focus, when there's a tax on his motivation, there's a tax on his safety, he stays focused not only in doing the work that God called him to do, but leading the nation and the people to accomplish that work. And so this is what happens as a result. Verse 15, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days total. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceive that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God, the great reversal. It often seems like when you engage in the work that God calls you to do, there are ebbs and flows of it being easy and hard. But in my own experience, it seems like the closer I've gotten to completing a work, whether that's reconciling a relationship, completing a task, Completing something big like our vision campaign, hiring somebody new, transforming a department, bringing on new partners, whatever it might be, I found that the closer I get to the finish line, the greater the resistance, the greater the opposition, the greater the attacks on focus, motivation, and safety. But we see here, right when there's breakthrough, after they finish the wall, immediately all those enemies they been trying their hardest to attack. All of a sudden, now they had fear. As it says, they lost their own esteem. Why? Not because they did the work, but because God had done it through them. And ultimately this work, again, it's not about them. It's not for their glory, not for their renown, not just for their safety. This is for God's glory, for God's purposes, As we shall see in the next two weeks, this story is part of an even greater story that begins in the book of Genesis and goes to the book of Revelation. That's the beauty of Scripture. These stories aren't just about that particular place and time. They are windows into the grand narrative of all of Scripture, which is a window into the grand narrative of all of eternity that you and I are invited into. So friends, my prayer today, even if you feel powerless, that you would receive power from on high, from God, the maker of heaven and earth, to give you a power to rest in God's vision, to rest in God's call in your life, to rest in God's provision for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you model for us as well Perfectly in the ways that Nehemiah does imperfectly, what it means to stay focused and to move in power because you always wanted to do the will of God the Father. People attacked your focus. People attacked your motivation. People attacked even your safety, even to the point of death. And yet, Jesus, you conquered death itself. You conquered sin itself. And we thank you that you, having risen from the grave, gave us the same spirit, to empower us now and forevermore. May we follow you faithfully today and every day. It's in Jesus' name I pray we say together, Amen.